Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll preview the new iteration of Art Design Chicago, a year-long initiative designed to support the city's art and design legacies. I caught up with the Terra Foundation for American Arts president and CEO to talk about the project. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new production of the musical version of Young Frankenstein. Later in the show, I'll visit the Museum of Contemporary Photography to check out its latest exhibit, titled Love Still Not the Lesser. And I'll preview a unique adaptation of the Divine Comedy that's taking place at a historic Chicago theater. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Five years ago, the Terra Foundation for American Art provided an injection of resources to celebrate Chicago's legacy as a hub for art and design. The initiative, called Art Design Chicago, helped support 95 partner organizations in a full year of programming that included 46 new exhibits, 29 publications, and over 300 events. An estimated 2.5 million people engaged with those programs, and Choose Chicago estimated the project generated $55 million in economic impact for the city. A new iteration of Art Design Chicago launched this week. The majority of the programming will take place in 2024, but some of it has already started, and other parts will go into 2025. Of course, a lot has changed in the short time period between the end of Art Design Chicago 2018 and now. The pandemic and the social justice reckoning that was born in 2020 have shifted views on the ways cultural institutions operate. The Terra Foundation has also changed. Its mission is the same, but the Chicago-based nonprofit has a new leader. Sharon Corwin took on the roles of the foundation's president and CEO early in 2020, not too long after the organization announced plans for a second Art Design Chicago and before the pandemic erupted in March of that year. I caught up with Corwin a few days ago at the Terra Foundation's River North Neighborhood office to talk about the return of Art Design Chicago. The 2024 iteration of Art Design Chicago had already been announced when you started as president and CEO at the Terra Foundation. So when you started in this role, did you come in with a a clear idea of what you wanted this version of the initiative to be? It was such an exciting moment because I came here in 2020 and Art Design Chicago had just happened in 2018 and it allowed me an opportunity to really see the impact that the Terra Foundation can have in the city. And it was such a successful citywide initiative. And so when I came here, we began to think about the future iteration of not just Art Design Chicago, but the Terra Foundation in general. And we really began to refine and revise our mission and thinking about and really supporting expanded narratives of American art and new ways of engaging in the art history and the art practice that we support. 
So it's really the, the what of our work and the how of our work. So we began talking as a team here at the Terra Foundation early on in those moments about how some of those values and that mission could be reflected in Art Design Chicago. So it was um, just a wonderful example of, um, first, the team here at Terra really coming together around um, this new thinking, but also the partners we were already in dialogue with who were really already thinking about new ways of working across the city and already engaged in this type of network building and, um, and deepening their relationships with each other that has become a really important part of this iteration of Art Design Chicago. So uh, they've been meeting, our partners have been meeting since 2021 to form a learning community in which they, they talk about opportunities to co-generate programs, to share resources, and to offer each other feedback. So I think what I realized um, coming here in, um, in 2020 was how collaborative the city already is as, a, as an arts city. So many cultural organizations, so many artists, but the real spirit of working together was already deeply built into this initiative. And it's something that we just continue to foster and build. So I remember back in 2018, there was a wide mission or directive. The hope was that these programs would celebrate Chicago's history uh, yeah. of art and design and its uh, legacy. Any philosophy change in, in that mission? No, I mean, I think one of the great things that Art Design Chicago does in this iteration that it did so successfully in the first one is really offer an opportunity for um, people to really understand their city better through art. And so the, um, the content is, some of it's different. We, we really have focused, uh, a number of our partner organizations are focusing on indigenous art, indigenous artists and partnerships here in the city. And so that's one content focus that we're really excited to see expanded in this iteration. And then the, the other real difference is just the, the time that our partners and our team at the Terra Foundation has put into the practice of planning. So this has been a multi-year planning that has brought together these organizations and these cultural leaders and these curators and educators and community activists to really talk about what um, and how to do the practice of, of art presentation, art interpretation, art engagement in the city, what that can look like. Obviously, a lot changed in 2020, and then things were foggy in 2021. Did that affect any of the planning? Gosh, COVID affected everything, didn't it? We were really in close dialogue with all of our partner institutions and heard from them that their timetables, we needed to be a little bit more flexible, which we were absolutely happy to be. And so what um, might have been a more concentrated version of Art Design Chicago has expanded in terms of the time frame. So we have done a soft launch. We already have a number of exhibitions open in the city and then we'll continue to see exhibitions and public programs and events happening throughout the city through early 2025. As far as criteria for a project to be part of this, does it just have to be related to Chicago in some way? Yeah, I mean we wanted to really take this as an opportunity to understand this city better through art and to connect this city through art. And so the, um, the city is very important to, to the story of Art Design Chicago itself. So having that engagement with and for the city was really fundamental to, um, to projects being included. 
If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. I'm talking with Sharon Corwin, the president and CEO of the Terra Foundation for American Art. The Chicago-based nonprofit launched the second iteration of Art Design Chicago this week. So as far as programming, once the application window opens and you start getting responses, was it a matter of the applications dictating the direction of this, or did you have an idea of what you were looking for? Yeah, that's a great question. We really want to, we wanted to be, and I think we were in this initiative, responsive to the field and responsive to the city. But we also wanted to focus, as our mission does, on ways in which we can expand the narrative of American art to really support uh, diverse storytellers, to deepen our understanding of Chicago through the many practitioners that make up the incredible creative ecosystem here. And so that became one of the guiding foci for, um, for this project. And I think it was really achieved because uh, our partner institutions were already really thinking about ways in which they wanted to broaden the narratives that they're telling within their institutions. So it was just something that we were happy to continue to support. Will there be examples of institutions working together on projects together? I think the the examples of those connections is maybe a little bit more behind the scenes um, when we think about the learning community that was brought together in the planning. So they would meet with really quite regularity um, to offer each other feedback on their projects, to talk about best practices or to share resources. And so there was really a lot of, um, I kind of think of it as a citywide engagement in the how of the work we do. We often talk about the what of our work. And so there was a real focus through this multi-year planning process on the practices that one engages in, the methodologies that one engages in, in doing these kind of practices, um, these kind of projects. So community engagement, there were a lot of community advisory boards being assembled and brought together to inform projects. And that's just one example of the type of larger citywide collaboration that was happening, not just with institutions, but with communities and with artists themselves. And then I just looked at some of the numbers, so it'll be a little smaller in scope as far as exhibits. Um, I think uh, in terms of partners, I think we're around the same number. This iteration of Art Design Chicago involves 50 cultural partners, 35 exhibitions. We have hundreds of programs that will be happening over the next 14 months in 30 Chicago neighborhoods and surrounding suburbs. So it's really citywide. And there's, there's something for everyone. There's something probably in every single person's neighborhood here um, and just a range of exhibitions and programs to be shared with the public. Was uh, geographic diversity something that was important? Absolutely. We wanted to um, make sure we reached into all parts of Chicago and, um, and brought the stories that are happening in each of Chicago's um, neighborhoods into this initiative and the artists that are working there and um, the stories that they're telling. So I think um, with 30 neighborhoods represented, um, uh, hopefully um, people will see themselves represented in this initiative. We're here at the the beginning, lots of optimism. Do you think about, is there like a, a measure of success for something like this? The opportunity to really just understand this city um, through its art making with um, greater complexity, greater um, nuance, greater diversity uh, through the exhibitions and programs that our partners are putting on is, um, I, I hope people will engage with it. I think of it as an opportunity to 
learn about art here and the, the practices that make Chicago so unique, but also to engage with it, um, to really engage with the programs that are being put on over these next months. Um, and the great thing is we're part of a larger, the Chicago Architecture Biennial is launching this month as well. And so it's really, I think, a vibrant and dynamic time for arts, architecture, and design here in the city, which is just renowned for its creative influence. There will be a number of Art Design Chicago programs taking place over the next year plus, many of which haven't been announced yet, but Corwin is already excited about a handful that are coming up. There's so many exciting exhibitions and programs happening. Um, one that's currently up is at the Center for Native Futures, which is in the Marquette Building on Adams, a, a new space. It is Native Artists Run, Native Artists Led, and they have just inaugurated their first exhibition uh, called Native Futures, which brings together artists, Native artists in the Lake, Great Lakes region. Um, and it's a fantastic show in their beautiful space. And I think it shows the type of um, contemporary practice that's happening today um, with Indigenous artists here in Chicago um, and in the Great Lakes region, and really an opportunity to, um, to share that work more broadly with the public. So that's one that, um, that I'm really excited about. And then there's just, there's so many coming up. Um, the High Park Arts Center will be showing the first retrospective by um, Robert E. Page. And so that's a really exciting moment for his work, um, Southside-based artists, to be better um, uh, represented in the community. And um, uh, other projects happening at the block will really center indigenous art. There are a project called Woven Being, uh, a project called Indigenous Chicago at the Newberry. So those are some of um, the ones I'm really excited about. And then we also have some artist-led um, projects. Tanika Lewis-Johnson is doing a project called Unblocked, which is an expansion of her Inequity for Sale project. Mm. And this project will look specifically at one block in Inglewood, um, in which she's engaging um, local artists and the Chicago Bungalow Association to rethink and revision uh, that block and um, and really address some of the discriminatory housing process um, policies and practices that were in place um, that she really uncovers in her inequity for sale project. She's always doing really creative stuff that one project she did where it looked at like the same block on the south side yes. and the, the north side. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And this is really early. Any thoughts? Could Art Design Chicago continue in the future? Yeah, I think at the moment we are not considering a third iteration, but we're very interested in what our, how we can continue to support the arts ecosystem, artists, and cultural institutions here in the city. So it's something that we're talking about actively um, with our partners in Chicago. It's this, um, Art Design Chicago has presented a real opportunity to be in dialogue with so many of these 50 plus organizations and institutions that are doing the work of cultural production and presentation in the city. So we're, we're excited about what that future will be and how we can play a, a role in supporting it. It's been a whirlwind for Corwin, who joined the Terra Foundation at a unique moment right before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. How have you found your, your time in Chicago <laughs> since you came here? Yeah, I, I absolutely love Chicago. I mean, it's, it's the great American city, isn't it? I mean, it's just, I, I moved from Maine, so from a rural to a very urban setting. But I think the thing that impressed me most and continues to impress me is um, how collaborative and 
collegial and innovative the art scene is here. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And so to, um, to play even the smallest role in supporting it is just a privilege and an honor. How do the, the winners in Maine compare to, the, to our winners? You know, I came prepared. I have my parka and my boots, so um, I, I wasn't deterred. <laughs> Sharon, thanks so much. Yeah, what a pleasure. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for your interest. That's Sharon Corwin. She's the president and CEO of the Terra Foundation for American Art. The 2024 iteration of Art Design Chicago is underway with some new exhibits already up. The initiative continues for the next year plus. You can find more information at artdesignchicago.org. And just a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section every Sunday here on WDCB, make sure to check out the show's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org, and also please drop me a line if you have a comment or question about the show. You can reach me at gzydic at wdcb.org, or find me on Instagram, or X, formerly known as Twitter, with the handle at onairgary. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Frankenstein, has spawned countless adaptations over the years. Joffrey Ballet just presented a ballet version of the work a couple weeks ago. Most of these adaptations have darker undertones and are meant to provide chills. Mel Brooks went the other way, poking fun at all these adaptations of Shelley's gothic tale in his 1974 film, Young Frankenstein. That was a big commercial hit, and also garnered two Oscar nominations. Decades later, Brooks adapted his film into a stage musical. It ran on Broadway for a little over a year. Now a new, much smaller production of the musical is being presented in Chicago by the Mercury Theater. Directed here by L. Walter Stearns. Carrie, what did you think of Young Frankenstein? You know, I think it's an absolutely delightful show that does not stray too far from the source material. Um, it'll check the boxes for anybody who loves the film, and I certainly count myself in that number. Uh, you will get, you know, the song titles alone will, you know, if, if, as I read them off, will remind you of, of things from the film. He was my boyfriend. Uh, and of course, <laughs> putting on the Ritz um, for Man and Monster. Uh, it, it's, it's a well-directed, beautifully cast production. I would say uh, particularly notable for the trio of women who circle around uh, young Frederick Frankenstein, as he insists on being called, not Frankenstein, um, as he wrestles with the inheritance of his grandfather and whether or not he himself is going to turn to the reanimating arts. Um, is it 
is it a great musical? I don't know about that, but I do think it's a it's an awfully fun time. Um, which may sound like I'm damning it with faint praise, but I don't intend for that to be to be what you take away from this. I found myself quite engaged with it. Jonathan, what did you think? Well, it's a, yes, it is a fun time. There's no question about that. The pace is snappy, uh, and the performances are all suitably exaggerated in keeping with a musical comedy parody of a great horror classic movie. Uh, there is uh, The cast have... Big voices, really astonishing pipes all over the place. And there are, as, as always at Mercury, wonderful musical values under the musical director, Eugene Dyson. Uh, the cast includes a, a great veteran Chicago performer, Sean Fortunato, as uh, a very droll Dr. Frankenstein. Uh, Sean Fortunato has always had an excellent supporting, uh, uh, excellent comedy chap. <laughs> Sean Fortunato has always had excellent comedy chops. Uh, I also like uh, Ryan uh, uh, Stagmeiger as uh, Igor and uh, Mary Robin Roth as Frau Blucher. She replaced replaced you, Carrie, in my mind as Frau Blucher. And I really like Andrew McNaughton as the monster, who has to wait a really long time deep into Act 2 before displaying his really amazing singing and dancing talents, but it's worth the wait. Uh, I also want to cite the choreographer, Brenda DDA, uh, again, a veteran here in Chicago. Uh, she doesn't have a lot of big production numbers to, to, uh, to, to, to challenge her talents in uh, Young Frankenstein, but when they do pop up, she really takes advantage of them. Uh, in Act One, there's Transylvania Mania, which in fact ends Act One, and the superb big ensemble tap dance showcase putting on the Ritz in Act Two, which really was quite, quite wonderful. Now, the show itself, yes, I agree. Young Frankenstein really is an old-fashioned show. It's a throwback to 1930s or 1940s kind of musicals. And frankly, Mel Brooks is not much of a composer. His tunes are mostly up-tempo, and they're pleasant, uh, and they fit the situations. But the score is what critics like to call serviceable, mm-hmm. which is, to pick up the phrase you used, it is the damn with faint praise. Uh, the songs work in context, context Certainly, Mel Brooks has come up with some very clever lyrics, but you know you aren't going to go out of the the theater humming any of them or remembering them the next day, except um, for putting on the Ritz, which was of course Irving yeah, Berlin, right. <laughs> which of course is written by Irving Berlin. Uh, you know what? The, the, I'm a, uh, you know a great great fan of the film too, and the great brilliance of the original movie, Young Frankenstein movie, is that it's an homage and also a parody of a cinema classic. And half its genius is the fact that it's black and white, and right. the cinematography, and the camera angles, and the lighting, and the shadows that, are, that, that, that make it so effective as both homage and parody. All of that is lost when you put it uh, you know, in, in living color on, on, on the stage as a musical. Young Frankenstein as a musical isn't bad all by itself, even if it's old-fashioned and, let's face it, somewhat labored, but it just, for me, just doesn't equal the level of the film it's based on. Right. I was, you know, I think it's interesting because I just saw the producers, the revival of that at Music Theater Works, 
And I think that show, which again was based on a Mel Brooks film, works better because it is a love letter to the theater. Yeah. So putting it on stage makes perfect sense. Whereas putting something, as you said, that was such an homage to this black and white style, the James Whale original, on stage, you do lose you know some of those textures. I do also wonder if if it's better in a smaller space. I did, I remember that this show did not get particularly you know kind reviews when it was on Broadway. Did have you seen it in a larger house? Because this was actually my first time seeing it on stage, Jonathan. So I was wondering if you had any basis of I comparison see, well, with it. <clears throat> well, you know, Mel Brooks when he did the producers, he had its pre-Broadway shakedown in Chicago, and it was a huge triumph here, as it was mm-hmm. in New York. So when he was doing, a few years later, Young Young Frankenstein, he brought it to Chicago for his pre-Broadway shakedown. So I saw the pre-Broadway tryout here in Chicago and haven't seen it since. And I will tell you the truth, there was almost none of it that I remembered. I've seen the movies since then, too. So I certainly recognized the, the scenes and lines and so forth in the musical that are the same as the movie, but I didn't really remember any of the things that they changed. So, um, you know, so, so yes, I, I saw it on a large, a large stage. And the problems with it, like I say, are not really the size, whether it's big cast, small cast. Uh, this is a company of, I think, uh, 15 or 16. Um, I didn't count them up, but that sounds about right. So the problems with it are, are not a question of whether it's done on a big stage or a small stage. You know, the thing about the producers, the original movie was a non-musical comedy about producing a Broadway musical. And as such, it actually had two or three musical numbers already in it. So it was a natural to take a non-musical movie about producing a Broadway musical and make it into an actual Broadway musical. You don't have that natural quotient in taking the film Young Frankenstein and making a Broadway musical out of it. And I think it shows. Right. That said, I do, again, want to shout out the three women. You already mentioned Mary Robin Roth as Frau Blucher. (laughs) I also want to give a a shout-out to uh, Isabella Andrews, who plays Inga, the voluptuous uh, assistant, uh, who also has the number Roll in the Hay. Again, if you remember Terry Garth in the original, you'll know exactly which scene I'm referring to. And then I thought I was a really, really wonderful uh, turn from Lillian Castillo as Elizabeth Benning, uh, young, young Frederick's fiancé. Uh, she has the unenviable task of stepping into the shoes worn by Madeline Kahn in the original. But I think that she brings, you know, a certain kind of sauciness to this and um, a, a real kind of buoyancy to the part. Um, that was really quite, quite surprising for me. Um, I, I love Madeline Kahn in the original. This one feels like she was not trying to do any kind of impression of that. Kind of went in a totally different direction than what I expected. But as you mentioned, lovely voices all around. Um, so I, I think these three women really do provide good satellites for Sean Fortunato's Victor. Um, right. I'm sorry, not Victor. Uh, Frederick, my goodness, see? Victor I've already made that mistake. <laughs> Victor was his grandfather, the mad doctor. Not to right. be confused with the grandson of right. the mad who's, doctor. Who's, who, and I love the fact that his, treat, that his grandfather's treatise about his experiment is called How I Did It. I think the visual setting is, is quite clever. You know, they have to do the, you know, the little turning around the bookcase and all of those things that we remember from the film. Uh, so, yeah, serviceable and enjoyable, I think, is how I would put this. Will it change your life? No. 
but these are hard days, and if people are still looking to get a little bit of, you know, uh, Halloween joy or just uh, something a little lighter on their plates, then this, this, this show might fill the bill. I agree that it is a strong production, and it delivers a lot of entertainment. And I should point out, at less, and, and really far less than half the price of a downtown uh, musical in one of the Broadway houses. Uh, and it's probably family-friendly, despite a dozen risque jokes and situations, which you expect with a sure. Mel Brooks vehicle. Mm-hmm. When I initially saw it on the Mercury Theater schedule... It made sense to to open Young Frankenstein in October, but I was surprised to see such a, a long run. This is going all the way to the the end of the year. Uh, you know, I think they opened this expecting they might get a, uh, a Halloween crowd, but also uh, I, I do think the the, the family friendly, mostly family friendly appeal of a show that could run through the the holidays. And, uh, you can only see Christmas Carol than... so many times. Right. After That's all. true. Although, yeah. Arguably, yeah. Christmas Carol has ghosts, so it's also a Halloween show. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, I guess, like alternative programming come December. Mercury Theater's Young Frankenstein continues all the way through December 31st. A couple quick notes. The musical the Dueling Critics reviewed uh, not too long ago just had some, some big news. It looks like The Who's Tommy is headed to Broadway. Yes, they just announced that uh, the, uh, the revival that uh, Goodman did that apparently broke all kinds of box office records there will be at New York's Nederlander Theater beginning on March 8th. The Broadway opening night is scheduled for March 28th. In the report in the Tribune, there's, uh, I was reading that casting has not yet been announced. It's still subject to negotiation. But there is apparently a sense that most of the uh, original Goodman cast will move with it, which I think would be excellent news because it was a, a truly terrific cast. Um, this is not surprising news, I don't think, Jonathan, but I think you and I would both agree that it's a show that probably deserves an, you know, an outing in New York as much as anything that we've seen recently would. Yeah, it was, uh, not only was it not surprising, it was totally expected. Right. I would have been surprised if, if the move hadn't been made. And I believe right. that this will now be the second Broadway revival for uh, for Tommy since yeah. the original production. And it, by opening by March 28th, that puts the, this production in contention for the 2024 Tony Awards. Which I'm sure which is a be big part out. of the calculus here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course, will be handed out next June. So they get in uh, just... Uh, just uh, you know, inside the wire to be Tony eligible for 2024. All right. Gary, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, You are welcome as always. Thank you both. Gary Zydek, and this is the art section. A new photo exhibit explores the different sides of the most central of all human emotions, love. The Museum of Contemporary Photography's Love, Still Not the Lesser, features work from 12 international photographers. The photos shine a light on a wide spectrum of the different ways love is experienced and interpreted. If you're thinking the exhibit is filled with photos of happy couples, you would be wrong. Though there are some examples of romance on display, the focus here is on a broader scope of the ways humans experience love. 
Love, still not the lesser, was curated by the Museum of Contemporary Photography's Asha Iman Veal. I recently caught up with her at the museum to talk about her approach to curating the exhibit and what inspired the idea. So if we go back to the, the beginning, what was the inception of what turned into Love, Still Not the Lesser? I tend to be a fairly political curator and wanting to work with artists on issues of representation. And when we had this exhibition slot come up, obviously our curatorial team, we take turns doing exhibition. I was at a portfolio review actually here in Chicago, Filter, and I met Jorge Ariel Escobar, one of the artists in the show. And I remember seeing his portfolio and seeing the portfolios of about 14 other artists that day, and everyone's work was about love. And it was in all different ways, whether it was very obvious in terms of romantic partnership, whether it was love of a place, love of family. There was even a series uh, by an artist, I believe, based in Chicago, who was thinking about prom dresses. And not even in the romantic aspect or the fairy tale aspect of what is prom, but what does it mean for your family to care for you and to want to send you out into the world looking beautiful, right? And I think that's when I realized, when I started thinking about this show in 2022, early, mid-22, how much the world needed to feel love after what we'd all been through since 2020, but the things we all continue to go through at this moment. You know, obviously the show has been open since August the 17th, so two months now, um, but even in the past week in the world, I still want people to have a place they can come and they can remember what it is to feel love and to see love and to remember that all human beings exist and divinely deserve love. It sounds like that initial idea started with a, a wide spectrum of the different ways we can in, interpret and express love. And then as you worked on it, did that evolve even more? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think one of the fun things about being a curator is that you're always meeting people, you're always meeting artists and seeing what they're working on. So as you're thinking about what to do for an exhibition in your particular museum, you know, based on the community that you serve, the city, the traveling visitors that you have, you have these relationships and this, this bank in your mind of who's working on what and how they want to communicate and what statements they'd like to make within an exhibition. So there are people whose work I've admired for a long time, like Mari Katayama in Japan or Moose Larambat in Belgium. And it becomes a moment where I can think, hey, I can actually reach out to you and I can meet you and I can see if you're interested in talking about love in these ways. There are other artists like Jorge who I'd met, you know, one-on-one -on -one at Portfolio Review. Yeah, some relationships are brand new. Some are people maybe you've admired from afar. Some people you've been working with from a long time. And that's kind of how it always tends to go. So was it the work that inspired some of the bigger ideas of love that you wanted to, to cover? Or was it the opposite of you identified like, okay, there's lustful love, romantic love, familial love, and then you looked for photos that you thought fit those categories? Yeah, actually, would it be okay to read a quote by James Baldwin now sure. that influences the show? There are two. Actually, I'll read them both. One is from the book The Fire Next Time from 1963. And the quote from James Baldwin is, I use the word love here, not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace. Uh, the other quote was said by James Baldwin in a documentary, Meeting the Man, James Baldwin in Paris, 1970. Has everyone been in love, not on the basis of the evidence? If they have, they've forgotten it. If everyone had been in love, they'd treat their children differently. They'd treat each other differently. So the ways that these artists are working in sensuality, in body, in community, thinking about aging, thinking about different types of families, it all essentially goes back to this quote. And we're thinking about ways that love is a state of being in the world, how you choose to treat people, the energy you want to foster within yourself and share with others. Also, you know, I think it's true. If anyone has ever felt love or they've wanted to feel love, they remember love, 
I can't imagine approaching another person or treating another person in a way that doesn't come from love. I think, you know, people have bad days, but I think there are so many people committed and so many artists who are committed to just showing love through self-portraiture, through portraiture um, themselves, obviously, people in their community, people around them. So everyone does this a little differently in the show. Um, sometimes it's Mari Katayama who appears in lingerie. Mari is a phenomenal artist who always says, you know, my work is not about disability, but Mari is someone who is a double amputee. And I always say there is nothing that is not beautiful in any, any image that she takes. She works in self-portraiture, most importantly herself. She's just stunning and gorgeous. We have Your Mind, which is this picture of her that I've just described. She's lying in kind of a plush setting. There always tends to be a lot of ornamentation in her work, whether it's lace or pillows or seashells. Um, you know, she thinks about texture, she thinks about touch, also through self-portraiture. There's another series that we have, um, I saw you next to it for a little while, and Mari's limbs are, they're blown up like columns. They're these huge, larger-than-life images. We have about nine on the wall. It's titled In the Water, and it is close-up shots of her limbs. So again, she's a double amputee. She has five fingers on one hand, she has two on the other. And, you know, we're looking at her body, which is covered in glitter, in staged as though in the sea, like you would look at really just monuments in this space. So I think there's so many different ways we think of bodies that are sites of devotion or desire or attraction. And all of the artists in the show are thinking about that in different ways that maybe aren't the ways that mainstream narratives have perhaps wanted to teach us to think. Would you go as far to like break it down into like the five categories that I, I read in the, uh, the notes, like a, a sensual, a romantic partnership type of love, a family structure, uh, social utopia and life and death? Is it fair to like use those categories or is it, does it go beyond those? I like these categories. I think it definitely does go beyond them, but I, I like the categories and I like that you're bringing them up here. So obviously there is the sensuality room on the first floor, which is Mari and another artist, Kiara Kiki King, who is a Chicago-based artist who has an amazing video called Fruitful Devotion. Kiki is someone who actually graduated in 2020 and, you know, she's a performer. She is a stage dancer as well as a choreographer and couldn't do that the year she graduated college, you know, with her degree in dance and so started making dance videos. I think, you know, people think about TikTok, they think about all these other things. Kiki is part of this movement that happened in 2020 of folks really elevating that form into fine art in a way that hadn't happened for a while. She has done three films now. Um, Fruitful Devotion is the third. The first was called Black Woman Why. The second was called Act Two, Scene Two. And they're all thinking about young black women and femmes um, across spectrums of queerness and just what it is to own your body and your agency and seeing the movements, seeing the colors, you know, the way that Kiki is playing with music and song in her first piece, not in the piece we have now, but just thinking about this artist as someone who's developed a trilogy of really striking work. And this third piece, Fruitful, you know, MOCP was able to commission it. So I think really supporting a young artist's career and someone who has really defied, you know, a rough moment in society to launch their artistic career is something we're really excited about and proud of. So that is the sensuality room. It's all sorts of power. Uh, something that felt really important to me also was showing loving relationships for people who were over 70 years old. I think, you know, again, when we think about mainstream media, sites of desire, who's active in which ways, you know, which parts of you continue, which don't. If you maybe haven't made it to that point in life yourself, you're taught that something stops, right? But we also know that that's very much not true. Tom Merlion is an artist from London who has a series um, between light and dark that was shot between 2019 and 2022. 
and it was following the death of his mother, Silvani Merlian. Servani was an artist herself. She worked primarily in painting and drawing, but she also took photos, almost in a way of doing figure studies of her husband at the time, you know, when he was a young man, 60s, 70s, 80s. And so she passed away herself a few years ago. In this family project, Tom and his mother were documenting that time. Um, when it began, they didn't know. You know, when she went into the hospital, they didn't know she was not going to come out. It was about six weeks. She had a camera that he brought for her, and she was taking pictures from a hospital bed. You know, when I think about the life of an artist, like, that's that's how you'd want to go out. Like, she never gave up her work. She never gave up her craft, even in the end. And he talks about not actually knowing what she was taking photos of until after she had passed away, and then he, then he saw, you know. Um, the same time, he started going through her studio and looking at her archival work and thinking about what it could be to kind of recreate the work she had started with the father, but himself. So he started taking pictures of his father, you know, who'd been a young man, many of the images you'll see at MOCP, and then Tom redoing that work. His father's now 94 years old. So we get to see just this evolution of love between a couple, but also a family through photos. There's also a... uh in addition to like the wide spectrum of like what love can encompass uh, just the subjects of uh, each of the different parts of the exhibit it, it feels like a global expression we're getting a sense of different parts of the world was that an intent not that we can tell just by looking at someone where they're from but it, there's a sense of globalism yeah very much so um, that's something that's always very important for our museum and it's also very important for me as a curator that globalism and that community showing again the connections across space, across cultures in ways that I think are just so important and so powerful and so fundamentally human. Veal believes photography has the potential to engage viewers in unexpected ways. You know, I think it's interesting living in the time that we do where literally everyone has a phone, everyone's a photographer, but this is still a place to come and learn about the art and the practice and the work of photography. When you walk through the front door, there's a piece on the right by an artist, Dorian Charlton, who is from Toronto. She is Jamaican-Canadian, and she shoots in film, not digital, and it's, it's interesting. One of the pieces there, it's called Georgia. It was from 2020, and there's this gorgeous woman lying in a field. There's always the joke in art history, kind of like there's always a woman in a field somewhere, you know? But like, this is Dorian's woman in this field. And when you see it, there are these streaks on the image, and people are like, streaks, streaks. And those are light leaks. So you can even come and just understand different ways of shooting, different types of technology, what it looks like, and artistic choice and style. You know, if those if those light leaks hadn't been there, I think the photograph would still be beautiful, but it's even more beautiful because they're there. Veal thinks Love Not the Lesser is resonating with visitors. She says though the exhibit was in the works for a long time. Given some of the current events going on locally and around the world, there's something comforting about looking at all these different forms of love. Love feels good. It feels fun when you talk about it in lots of different angles. It feels sexy, it feels warm, it feels caring. Um, I will say also we're a museum that's meant as an educational facility, so you can have like your elementary student come in here and it's fine. You know, you can have a middle schooler or a high schooler, it's fine. It is not a rated R exhibition in that way at all. But it's been nice to see viewers coming in and just wanting to remember that we all are love, we all feel love, we all experience love in so many different ways, whether again it's through memory, whether it's through your family, a partnership, whether it's through your friend, whether it's the way that you want to walk through the world and feel loved by others and you want to share that. And it's been actually really lovely to watch people just literally walk around a space of love. And it's something you can actually see that people somehow feel comfortable 
they feel good, they feel happy. And really in conceiving the exhibition a year and a half ago, that was my goal, to make a space where people could feel love and they could just feel good. And we could all remember that and we could all share it. Veal authored an essay to accompany the exhibit and she ends it with these lines. Love is love. Love is a right of existence. Love is a language of justice. Love is peace. Love is growth. Love learns tenderness. Love is something that we forever remember, even when it is mourned. And sometimes, love begins with a passionate fire. Asha, it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you, Gary. Thanks for coming to see The Love Show. That's Asha Iman Veal. She's the curator of Love Not the Lesser. The exhibit's currently on display at the Museum of Contemporary Photography, which is located at 600 South Michigan Avenue through December 23rd. You can find out more info at mocp.org. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. A historic Northside theater is hoping to engage audiences with an eclectic mix of programming that includes continuing a newer November tradition. The Athenaeum Center for Thought and Culture is presenting its reimagined Divine Comedy titled Dante 360 the next two weekends. The performing arts space, located at the corner of Southport and Wellington, originally opened in 1911 as a community space for the Redemptorist Fathers of St. Alphonsus. For decades, it was known simply as the Athenaeum Theater. That changed in 2021. It was renamed the Athenaeum Center for Thought and Culture. Our nonprofit entity formed in 2020. The historical building had been operating, managed by different organizations. The building had been known as the Athenaeum Theater. Part of our name change was one setting up a new organization. I think there was a number of nonprofits that already had the name Athenaeum Theater in their title. This is Lawrence Doffenbach. He's the executive director of the Athenaeum Center. As we were kind of looking at the project and and starting the new operation, we started to kind of look and step back at how do we how do we bring more people into the entire building? Obviously, a good portion of the building is made up of the theater itself, but um, if you kind of look at the front half of the building, there's three floors of space that we wanted to be able to kind of utilize in a way that you know, brought, brought context to, to the title, right? And so the Athenaeum Center was the idea of, yeah, it's the theater. I think people always, you know, we certainly, certainly still refer to the theater itself as the theater. Um, the historic main stage, the Athenaeum Theater, within a larger complex, right, within the Athenaeum Center. Um, so Athenaeum Center for Thought and Culture is the new organization and nonprofit that manages the, uh, what was originally called the St. Alphonsus Athenaeum. These days, the venue hosts a wide variety of performances and events. Tonight, Chicago's own Jeff Tweedy will take the stage. The Lakeview Orchestra calls the Athenaeum home, and over the next several weeks, there will be multiple ballet productions of the Nutcracker. The building offers a lot, and so there's a, there's, there's a plethora of, of rooms and spaces that we can make available to uh, predominantly nonprofits. Performing arts um, has been the, the historic and continuation of the way we use the building. Um, you get everything from large concerts to um, dance, dance shows, 
to theatrical, to opera, to comedy. Um, so being able to kind of service uh, all the different genres that come into uh, both performance and um, part of the, the Lakeview and Chicago community uh, is what the building allows, it gives us that flexibility to, to provide space for. But Dante 360 is an Athenaeum Center production. Doffenbach was inspired to create the project after noticing a painting of Dante Alighieri above the Athenaeum stage. One of the early days when I first was touring the building and kind of reimagining how we could really keep the building alive, there was there was plans in motion of potentially selling the building. A lot of question marks, would the, would the building continue? One of the first things when sitting in the main stage one day as I was looking up at the you know, beautiful historic proscenium arch and right in the center is the, the, the original depiction of Dante and Beatrice or Dante and Beatrice from the Divine Comedy. And so the original founders of the building when it was first built in 1911 uh, were the, the Redemptorist Fathers, the Italian order, St. Alphonsus Liguri. And so when the Italians came over, it, 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 it makes a lot of sense that they would, they would bring over that beloved poet of their rich history to this community, uh, which was at the time uh, mostly a German community. And so bringing that Italian culture Dante and Beatrice have been sitting over every production in the main stage since 1911. And, you know, I, I looked up and I, I thought, wow, we got we to gotta find a way to not only, you know, bring the community back to recognize this historical building, but awake Dante from his slumber as he's been looking over you know, patrons for for over 100 years. And so the idea occurred to, we got to bring Dante to this stage. We got to bring some education, some some theatrics, how can we bring Dante now? The most famous body of work, I would say, from Dante Alighieri is the Divine Comedy, or a lot of people know the first section of that book, which is the Dante's Inferno. And so our thought when launching was, well, it's the month of November. Our, our organization formed in November. The building originally opened in November. We do the show Dante 360 every year in the month of November. Um, we started off in 2021 uh, with one night show. We had about 450 people come out for that event, and it was a huge success. So we thought, let's let's do it again next year. Um, did three nights last year, again success every night, and this year we're we're running it two weekends from November 10th through the 19th, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday shows. So excited about it. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking with Lawrence Doffenbach, the executive director of the Athenaeum Center for Thought and Culture, about the venue's third annual production of Dante 360. The main concept, I would say, behind Dante 360, and the title is sort of um, speaks to what we had hoped when creating the production. You know, my thought was, how do we bring Dante to a modern-day audience? Uh, obviously, his body of work has circulated a number of you know, schools, education system, scholarly, poetic societies. But not everyone today reads, picks up the Divine Comedy or Inferno. And so we thought, how do, how do we bring and introduce that body work, but also maintain its original um, text? And so the concept of the Divine Comedy, or Dante 360 in this case, um, was to combine three different performing art elements. So there's an element of lecture and visual art. We knew that if we're going to be bringing the audience through the Divine Comedy, to go through every canto performed would, would end up being a three-day-long a, a three show. And so we thought, how do we, how do we introduce the audience to the story of, of the Divine Comedy, walk with Dante Alighieri through the book, 
but at the same time still have a beginning, middle, end, have a story arc, a journey, if you will, that the patron can experience. They can get a taste of what the Divine Comedy um, is all about and at the same time hopefully learn something along the way. And so to do that we have taken selection, selected contos. So you know the first process was um, all right we need to we need to kind of formulate the concept of the divine comedy into a series of contos. Together I worked with our one of our advisory board members and uh, Elizabeth Lev who's an art historian in Rome. She is uh, very familiar with the, certainly the visual artwork of the Divine Comedy and knows a lot of uh, just, a, just a tremendous amount of knowledge about Dante Alighieri. Um, so together we put together a series of contos that we thought these are the contos that would allow an audience to understand Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy between Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. That took a little bit of time just to kind of build and work through the, you know, the, the text. The Divine Comedy has a, a, a a healthy number of translations um, that first thing we had to decide was all right which which text makes the most sense not only from the a patron experience standpoint but but also a very important part was what's going to be easiest and most effective for actors to memorize from there we have a series of contos from uh, all three sections of the divine comedy those are performed by actors chicagoland actors every year um, that we bring in and audition and we run the show with. Throughout the show, we also have music, selected works from the 1500s all the way up until the 1990s. Uh, so you have your lecture, you have the theatrical performing elements, and, and then the music component. Uh, we took music from the 1500s to now, a series of, of tracks that are sung by a seven-person vocal ensemble, uh, Skull Antiqua is the group that s sang with us the first two years. Uh, this year we're running two different weekends and we have both the Skull Antiqua as well as our own curated group of musicians uh, that are going under the title they're introducing this year as the Athenaeum uh, Armonia. And so those two music ensembles will make up the different weekends of music and the performances. Uh, Elizabeth Lev will be the art historian sort of Dante guide if you will that takes you through the story arc so there are moments when that guide really kind of takes you through a series of kind of moments of description of kind of sets up the scene to some degree at times over the course of the production you see less of the guide as you fully immerse yourself into the divine comedy you get a kind of a combination of the music the acting and then we also have a visual arts component uh, with projections so different uh, visual depictions and paintings and elements that are interweaved throughout the show. Um, this year we're gonna have a ramp up of more projection elements in the show than last year. Every year we, we try to kind of enhance the design and make small changes to, to, to elevate the production further. Um, so you have this sort of 360 experience of the, the text, the music, the visual. And so those components along with the guide and narration provide you this kind of ultimate experience of the Divine Comedy in a way that I think will reach different different patrons at different points. Um, and that, that sort of set a precedence for how really we like to look at our programming um, as Athenaeum Center for Thought and Culture and some of the other programs that have uh, dovetailed off of Dante. We've, we've sort of taken this multidisciplinary um, approach to 
how we program. Like many local performing arts venues, the Athenaeum is concerned about the fallout from the pandemic, where audiences have been slow to return to in-person events. We saw a little bit of a spike after you know, the first uh, hurdle over the post-COVID uh, era, but this year, I think across the board, with, um, you know, live events, attendances have, have gone down. Um, people are, are, you know, more content in their own homes, and, and you see that in, I think, all of the, um, all the types of genres. You know, obviously, uh, uh, film is, is equally uh, one of those. People, people, you know, don't go to the theaters in the same way that they, they used to. Um, I think the same, same, there's always a certain aspect of live entertainment that, um, you know, if you've experienced it, you get it, but it, it takes a, that much extra of a encouragement to get out the door these days, and part of our challenge is to kind of play a part in helping people realize we need community, we, we need to be in person with one another, and so that's a hope for a lot of what we do here. That's Lawrence Doffenbach. He's the executive director of the Athenaeum Center for Thought and Culture. The venue's Dante 360 opens Friday, November 10th, and continues for a select number of performances through November 19th. You can find more info at athenaeumcenter.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.